Last week, I shared a quote from a great poet by the name of Muriel Rukeyser that says this, The universe is made of stories, not atoms. And when we look at history, we can see a collection of stories, some large, some small, and even, even the very word history comes from this contraction of two words, his story. And when we speak about history in the big picture, in the largest of pictures, or the grandest of pictures, and, and in the biblical picture, in fact, history and scripture is the story of God's story. What's happening with God? What's happening in the universe? And what's happening with his children? And as we discovered in our journey together, God is not a tangible physical reality like an elephant or a tiger that we can instantly picture or instantly uh, think of. God is something bigger than that. He's grander than that. And he's something more than that. And one of the insights that we gain from scripture is that God is social by nature. God is love. And so when he creates, he creates out of love. And love cannot be kept to itself and must be other-centered. But today we're going to spend some time talking about the fall of man. But before I do, the last Sabbath we discussed Facebook and how it shows us the reality of humans desiring to create, communicate, and to connect. And that we get these desires from God because God has these desires too and we're created in his image. We also discovered that God speaks creation into existence, that his word possesses the very creative power to create out of nothing. Ex nihilo was the word, out of nothing. But when it came time to create a companion, a son, a daughter and friends, he did not merely speak Adam and Eve into existence. But he came down to the very rock and into the garden and he formed man, fashioned man from the dust of the earth. And he got so close that he breathed into, into Adam the breath of life and we saw this connectivity of God. The communication of God and the outflowing of God's love. But today we're going to spend time discussing this conflict, discussing the fall of man. All of creation, all of the connection, all of the communication is going to come apart at the seams in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the entire Bible is set against this backdrop of conflict. It's quite interesting because the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time in Genesis to describe who the conflict is with. We don't really know much about him when we read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And he's suddenly introduced almost too quickly into the picture. We go from reading Genesis 1 and 2 with a perfect God in a perfect environment and perfect communion with his perfect children. And then in Genesis 3, it's like, bam, we're introduced to conflict and this fall of man. And to get some insight or some background into who the conflict is with, we have to turn to the to the to the end of the bible into revelation 12 verse 10 all the way at the back of the bible in revelation 12 verse 10 we read this then i heard a loud voice saying in heaven now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our god and the power of his christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before god day and night has been cast down so the Bible can be summarized this way, that it opens with an accusation in Genesis chapter 3, and then all the way to the back of the Bible in Revelation, it closes with the silencing of the accuser and that accusation. 
Now we're going to spend some time today on what is the nature of the accuser and what is the nature of the accusation that he makes. The Bible has a number of verses that give us a little bit of insight into the other side of this conflict and the backdrop that the Bible's set against. Verses that give a picture into the other side of the reality of this conflict. The name Satan that we've heard of comes from a Hebrew word spelt in a similar way, but pronounced Satan. And the word simply means adversary, opponent or accuser. So we in English language have taken that word and turned it into a name, Satan. And there aren't a whole heap of passages that reveal much about Satan to us, but there are a few. Now, what's interesting is that Satan isn't presented as, as, you know, he's not particularly powerful or mighty or strong. Actually, the strength of Satan in Scripture is actually in his subtlety and in his accusation. For instance, in Job chapter 1, we are introduced to Satan as an accuser of God. And you might, you might even know the story that there's this heavenly council that's convened in heaven. And all of these heavenly representatives come to present themselves before God and Satan comes with them. And God asks him a question and he says, what are you doing here? Why are you here amongst these other representatives of the universe? And Satan says something very interesting in this verse. He says, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Now, he's not talking about going for a stroll around the earth. He's making a territorial claim of the earth. You, oh, you know, you know, I rep, I'm here because I represent earth. To which God responds and he says, well, wait a minute. If you're here representing earth, haven't you considered my servant Job? Job doesn't live according to your ways. He doesn't live according to your principles. My servant Job, who is an upright and a righteous man, a kind man, an honest man. What about my servant Job? And right here, maybe in front of the various representatives of the universe, Satan says something very, very interesting. He, Satan essentially says this to God. He says, well, of course Job is a good guy because you've essentially bought him off. Haven't you? You've bought him off, given him houses and children and lands and health and wealth. Haven't you surrounded him with blessings? But if you took all of those blessings away, he would curse you to your face. Now, that is an unapologetic and undisguised accusation against the way in which God goes about getting his friends and his followers. He essentially says, of course he's that way. You've purchased him. You aren't worthy in and of yourself, God. You are not worthy in your character or your nature and in your person to be loved and honored and obeyed and feared and worshipped. No, you are merely buying your friends off. And if you took all that stuff away, Job would see you for who you really are and he, he would curse you to your face. To which God concedes. He concedes this challenge and he says to Satan, do with him as you will, but don't put a hand on him. And as the story of Job unfolds, it's basically about Job dealing with loss of his, the, of his family, of his wealth, and he basically loses everything. And at one point, his own wife comes out to him and says, what are you doing, Job? Curse God and die. Clearly, you're a sinner and God has disowned you. Clearly, God has no interest in you. To which Job honorably says, though he slay me, yet I will still trust him. 
The whole book of Job is set against this backdrop, this this implicit scriptural narrative that God is being accused, that God is on trial, and God has somebody pointing the finger at him saying, he's not what you think he is. And this is supported in Isaiah chapter 14, which describes Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, it describes Satan as wanting to exalt and ascend his throne above the stars of God. There is this accusation that that Satan's kind of making where he says, I could run the universe better than God himself. And then in Ezekiel 28, there is this really weird word that shows up. It's a word described in the English as trading or trafficking. God is sort of God is sort of raising these observations about Satan. And one of these things that he says to Satan is, you trafficked, you traded, or you merchandised. What's very interesting is the very thing he was trafficking, trading, or merchandising were these lies and accusations about God himself. All of which are about God not being trustworthy, that God cannot be trusted and should not be worshipped. Now, probably the most senior theologian in the SDA church is a guy by the name of Dr. Richard M. Davidson. He's the head of the Old Testament department at the Andrews Seminary. He makes this point that all of Scripture is basically a commentary on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Or put another way, if you understand the first chapters of the Bible, chapters 1, 2, and 3, you have a good chance of understanding the rest of the biblical uh, narrative correctly. But the converse is also true. So if you misunderstand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, then you're more likely to misunderstand the rest of the biblical narrative. But before we head to Genesis chapter 3, I'd like to jump to John 8, 44. John chapter 8, verse 44. And in John chapter 8, verse 44, we read this. It says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So here we have Satan introduced to us in John chapter 8 verse 44 from scripture as a liar, a murderer and an accuser. Now it's very interesting that Jesus describes Satan as a murderer here. Because not all sin is murder, but all sin is murderous in its intent. There are a lot of sins that aren't murder, but sin at the end of the day is about me and mine. In its intent, in its very, in the very core of sin, sin is murderous because it's about my desire to be over and above you or anyone else. That is why Jesus says, he says this, he says, You have heard that said by them of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And this is what Jesus means. Not that Satan began to murder other angels or other people, but Satan introduced an idea, an idea wrapped in an accusation. Satan was was a murderer, not in the sense that he began to come in and, and machine gun people down. He was a murderer from the beginning because he introduced an idea and this idea is wrapped in an accusation. And this accusation is against the father of life and the fountain of life, God 
himself. So please go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. What Genesis chapter 3 introduces to us here is something that is crucial to understand when discussing the bigger picture of what God is. That is something results out of a natural consequence of the deception in Genesis chapter 3 that's presented here. You see, Satan begins his accusation based on three ideas. And if we internalize those three ideas, sin will actually become just a natural consequence of believing those three ideas. Genesis 3 comes way too early in the Bible. You know, like we hope that there would there would be a book or two describing what the garden was like or what it was like to live with the animals, that Adam and Eve's relationship with God and with each other and, and, and what that relationship would look like. But no, we don't get that. It goes straight from creation instantaneously into a conflict. The conflict is, is also not introduced as a conflict of power or strength or muscles. Not two, not two equally matched beings battling it out. It's introduced as an idea wrapped in an accusation. So here we have Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning. The very first thing that we're told about the accuser is that he's crafty, he's clever, he's cunning, he's very intelligent. Not that he's powerful or strong or anything like that. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Well, let's have a quick look back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Maybe just the page over, page before where we are now. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. This is God speaking to Adam here. And, he, and God says this to Adam. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now, I want you to notice the huge amount of freedom that Adam and Eve have. The question that comes to mind is how many trees do you think were in were in the Garden of Eden? Was it something like a hundred, two hundred, a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand, ten million trees? We don't really know, but let's let's be conservative and guess that there's something like ten thousand trees in the Garden of Eden. You see, you get this picture of vast expanse of freedom and liberty, don't you? Then in verse 17, God says, But of the tree, the singular tree, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Here God is basically saying, have at it. Go for it. Go nuts. Go and have a great time. Eat as much as you want. Enjoy yourself as much as you want. Oh, but by the way, before you run off, just of this one tree, this particular tree, this one tree over here, please don't eat of it because in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now, let me tell you, that's how God reigns his kingdom on this principle of freedom. God reigns on the principle of liberty and freedom. God wants to set people free. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 36, it says there, therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. This idea that God is restrictive and is, ra is wrapped in this idea in the question that the accuser asks. He says, has God really said you shouldn't eat of every tree in the garden? 
The way the question is structured draws our attention, draws the attention away from the reality of the situation of having liberty and freedom and draws the eye to this restriction. Makes it seem like there is this vast area of restriction with only the tiniest bit of freedom. The way the question is asked suggests that God is unclear, unreasonable and restrictive in nature. But Satan hasn't said any of those things. But the way he asks that question suggests it. Did God really say that? Has God really said you can't eat of every tree in the garden? God's unclear. God's unreasonable. And he's restrictive. Now what's interesting, the conversation continues and Eve responds. And Eve actually senses that something doesn't sound right. That, that that doesn't seem like God that, that they've come to know over the period of however long they're in the garden for. But she comes to God's defense. And I just want to make a note here. God's word doesn't need defending so much as obeying. If she'd simply stood in the confidence that God was who he claimed to be, a God that is loving and caring and compassionate and all those things, she would have been fine. But she feels the need to defend him. And here's the danger. Now she's entered into a dialogue with somebody who is her intellectual superior. Now the conversation has begun. And when we, when we have a conversation with the enemy, and by the way, most of the conversations we have in it are in our own minds, rather than in a garden next to a tree. But the moment that that conversation has begun, we're already at a disadvantage. Our role is not to reason with somebody who is infinitely more intelligent than us. Our role is just to say, well, you know, God said it. He knows a lot better than me. I'm going to obey him because he's God and I believe he loves me. Now, the serpent has a right where he wants her. Now he makes a statement. He makes a statement to Eve and he says, you will surely not die. And here's the second point he's trying to make about God. God is dishonest and trustworthy. Essentially, he's saying, I don't know what the old man has said to you, but that's not going to happen. I don't know what you've been told, but I can assure you that when you eat of this tree, you will surely not die. Does it even make sense that you would die? Think about it. Have you eaten of any of the other trees? Have you died because you ate of those trees? No. Why would you die from eating from this tree? Is that even in God's nature to let you die? And seemingly, as us, with us as readers, Satan is onto something. I mean, after all, God is love. How could he allow anyone to die? And Adam and Eve could eat of numerous other trees and they hadn't died. Why should it be any different from with this tree? Where the first question Satan asks is suggestive, the second statement is directive. Satan suggests God is unclear, unreasonable, restrictive, and untrustworthy. Oh, but God, God's not like that at all. God lied to you. That's not true. When you eat of, of this, you won't die. Now, if the first is bad and the second is worse, then the third is the worst of all. What the accuser does here in verse 5, he actually attributes motive why is God unclear, unreasonable, restrictive, dishonest, and untrustworthy? Well, at this point, we don't know why. But in verse 5, here he says, For or because God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. And here is the pinnacle of the idea that Satan's trying to get to. The reason why God is all of these things is because God is selfish and only looking out for himself. You see, God knows. He's only trying to keep you down. He's a suppressive God. He knows that when you eat of this tree, your life will actually be better. He doesn't want your life to be better because God is selfish. And this is the point that we often miss. We often think that what's really going on in the Garden of Eden is the woman eating the fruit. That's just the end of the story. That's not even the main part of the story. When the woman reaches out and when she goes to partake of the fruit, we think that's the point there. The biting of the fruit comes as a consequence of believing Satan's three points. This isn't the beginning of the fall. This is the end of the story. And once you believe those three points that Satan's trying to portray, God has, sin is going to just happen naturally. If you believe all of the points that he's just shared about God, sin is just natural, inevitable consequences of believing this false picture of God. The primary sin didn't come when she bit into the fruit. The primary sin came when she began to believe the picture of God painted by God's accuser. And many of us say to ourselves, you know, I'm going to stop doing whatever your sin might be. That thing, I'm going to stop doing that. And you can try to stop doing that all you want. But the only way to really stop doing that is to get your belief system right. And at the center of your belief system, there has to be an accurate, biblical and beautiful picture of who God actually is. Just trying to stop uh, the sin or, or just trying to stop biting that apple doesn't work. Some of you and me included have already tried that. It didn't work. A prolific author actually writes this. It is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God. You see, when I first started working as a minister, I had an induction day at the conference office during which they were giving us a rundown of our responsibilities uh, and what they were and what we should be doing and how we should structure our weeks. And during the conversation, I piped up and I asked, you know, like, what day do we get off? And I'll never forget the answer. They said, you can take off the same day Satan does. And I'm like, well, what day is that? <laughs> So I don't know if Satan sleeps, but if he does sleep, when he wakes up in the morning, he has one item on his to-do list. For, for me, and maybe for some of you, on your to-do list, you might have 10, 20, 30 things to do. Maybe even more, but Satan has a single item on his list, and that is to misrepresent the character of God. This prolific author writes, it is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God. He causes them to cherish false conceptions of God so that... Now, that's very interesting because there's a, there's a, there's a reason behind this misrepresentation. The misrepresentation of God is just a means to an end for Satan. He's trying to achieve something even greater than the mere represent, misrepresentation of God. What's he trying to achieve? Well, it continues and it says, So that they, or we, would regard him, God, with fear and hate rather than with love. I just want to share that again. So that we would regard him with fear and hate rather than with love. The point is to misrepresent God so that people will hate and fear him, not love him for who he is. 
There's a great many people in the world today that are rejecting God for all of the right reasons. There's a great many people today that don't believe in God. And you know what? The God they don't believe in, I don't actually believe in either. So often when we hear people rejecting God, don't immediately feel that you need to come to the defense of God because you might be defending a God that's not the God of Scripture. When I find myself talking to people of an atheistic or an agnostic or a skeptical persuasion, before I begin to defend God, I want to know what is the God that they don't believe in like. Because there's a very good chance that after, after they've shared, I will say to them, I don't believe in that God either. That God is, is revolting to me, in fact. Let me say something to you right now, and hopefully you take it in the light that I mean it. Of the hundreds and thousands of gods that have ever been created or imagined or written down throughout history, I disbelieve in all of them except for one. I don't believe in the God of Zeus or the various Greek and Roman gods. I don't believe in the 330 million deities of Hinduism. In fact, I don't even believe in some of the Christian gods that are described as a God that predetermines who's saved or who's lost. Oh, and by the way, if you're among those who are lost, you spend eternity writhing in the fires of hell. I don't believe in that God. Not only do I not believe in that God, I find that God to be an offense to reason and intelligence. There is only one God that I believe in. Jesus said this, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying here. Jesus was saying, I am the way to truly understanding God. I'm the truth about God, who God actually is. And I'm living the very life of God. Let me repeat that. Jesus is saying, I am the way to God. I'm the truth about God, and I am living the very life of God. In fact, just three verses later, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, essentially saying, I am what God is like. The picture of God that we have in our mind will determine whether we sin or not. When Eve ate of that fruit, she was just doing what was natural and inevitable when believing a false image of God. So if sin is a, is a natural and inevitable consequence of believing a false image of God, then yours and my journey over our selfishness, over sin, over rebellion, over transgression, or whatever the fruit is in your life, it doesn't begin with stop trying to bite that fruit or stop sinning. It begins by believing the truth about what God actually is and who he is. You see, if your internal or emotional picture of God doesn't look like the Jesus of the Gospels, then your picture is wrong. What should come to mind when the name of God is said is the man Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, the way he treated people, the way he was patient with people, the way he was kind to people, the way he affirms people, the way he looks out for people, the way he lives for people, and the way he died for people. That is who God actually is.